But if you haven't already, take your Bibles and let's turn to Revelation 21. And we'll be looking at the first eight verses of Revelation 21. But before we uh, start, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer and then we'll read the passage and then get at it. So, Heavenly Father, as we gather tonight to study your word, Lord, what a privilege it is to gather with your saints to sing songs of praise about how we trust in our Lord Jesus for all of our needs and how we trust in Jesus, not only for our salvation, O Lord, but also for the consummation, as we will see here in these last final chapters of the book of Revelation, how all of redemptive history has been leading to this point, is leading to this point, and will culminate at this point of the new heavens and the new earth. This is our hope. This is what we long for, Lord, as we go through this veil of tears in this, in this world, Lord, as even the creation itself groans in anticipation for the end, for the coming of the new heavens and the new creation. Lord, help us to see these with eyes of hope. Help us to use these verses, Lord, to bring comfort in our trials and to bring a new step in our hope, in our Christian living, that we may live, Lord, in a way that brings you glory and honor and also, Lord, in a way that is consistent with our calling in Christ. So, Lord, bless this time in your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 8. John continues, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But here you have it, the new heavens and the new earth. And, and really what we have here is what Revelation has been leading up to all this time. All this time, from the very beginning when, when Jesus appears to John on Patmos and tells him to write to the churches in Asia, 
this was the culmination. This was what uh, the whole point of this book was, was to bring hope to people in the church who were facing persecution. The church at the end of the first century was getting ready for a severe persecution at the hands of the Roman emperor Domitian. Uh, There's been persecutions all throughout church history, some very severe, some very localized, but all of it part of the plan that uh, the church would be that persecuted entity in the world that would go forth and would be the witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, it's very easy for Christians in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the persecutions, to feel discouraged, to feel disheartened, to feel that, that perhaps you thought wrongly about all these things. So Jesus gives these visions to John while he himself is also in exile on the Isle of Patmos suffering for his faith, for his testimony. And he gives this vision to him to then send out to the churches, and not just to those seven churches, but also to the church throughout the rest of history. Right? Revelation, while it was written for those seven churches, is also for us here in the 21st century, as we also are a church, at least in the world, under persecution. Maybe not necessarily in this country, but it's coming. Uh, Don't think that the days of ease and grace here in America are going to last forever. So Revelation shows us the vast scope of redemptive history from the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension to his return as Jesus gives John these visions of what is going to take place after these things. And we've been arguing that these visions are organized in seven cycles that show the whole period of time from different camera angles. And now those visions are done. Those visions are complete. And now Jesus, the Lord, gives another vision to John of the new creation. So again, this is what it's been leading up to. This point now where the old things are going to pass away. The new things are going to take place. This was what was originally held out to Adam in the garden if he would have obeyed. But he failed in that. So now you have everything from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 is necessary because Adam failed. But where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So now we're going to see this vision of the new heavens and the new earth where all things are made new. And everything now from the rest, from starting in chapter 21, verse 1 to the end of the book is all about the eternal state. It's all about heaven. It's, in a sense, it's all about new creation. It's all about heaven coming down to earth and things being remade, things being renewed, and everything that is characteristic of the world that we live in now will be gone. It'll be gone. As in that great verse, verse 4, where God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. He will wipe away the pain. There'll be no death, no sin, no pain, no crying, no sorrow, because all the former things have passed away. So tonight as we look at these verses, I want us to see this point clearly, which is the second coming of Christ signals the passing away of the old creation and the ushering in of the new creation. Or you could say, out with the old, in with the new. And that's what you have in your outline there, right? The first point, out with the old. The second point, in with the new. And the third point, 
It is done in verses 6 through 8. So again, as I've been saying, Revelation chapters 21 and 22 are not only the final two chapters in the Bible, they are the final words of redemptive history. They make the culmination of God's plan of redemption. They serve as the bookend of Genesis 1 and 2, where you have paradise created in Genesis 1 and 2. You now have paradise restored or regained at the end in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. You're going to see images in in the weeks to come. You're going to see images that bring us back and recall to mind Eden, the tree of life, the river of life, uh, all the the beauty and splendor of, of the new creation as this vision, John tries to describe it, in, and it's in language, I'm sure, that just probably it, the language itself probably pales in what the reality truly is. But you've got paradise lost, paradise regained, and in the middle is how, you know, we go from being dead sinners in Christ, uh, in, in, in Adam, to being live sinners in Christ. As, as the whole of redemptive history is to bring forth Christ as the Messiah to accomplish God's plan of redemption, to save a people for the kingdom that will now be ushered in, as we will see here in chapters 21 and 22. So again, as, as John sees these seven visions... These seven cycles of visions of redemptive history, he now sees in verse 1 of chapter 21 a new heaven and a new earth. And why does he see a new heaven and a new earth? Well, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That word there, passed away, to pass by, to perish, in a sense, there to to perish. Uh, We see this prophesied in the book of Isaiah. If you'd like to turn there with me, <coughs> excuse me, Isaiah 65. <coughs> In Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19, there the prophet gets a vision, a prophecy here. He speaks for God, where he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Think about that for a moment, right? You know, everything that is, again, characteristic of this heaven and this earth, as the prophet here says, will be remembered, will never be remembered. It will not come to mind anymore. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. That is being fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21. Also flipping over to chapter 66. The last chapter in Isaiah verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Again, God is making a new heavens and a new earth. He spoke the old heavens and the old earth into existence at the beginning in Genesis 1, and now he will remake those. And we looked at this last time, too, a little bit in Second Peter. 
which has language of new creation as well, on the day of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, where Peter there says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So Peter pulls an application out of that. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, the old heavens and the old earth on the day of the Lord will pass away. They will, Peter uses language of dissolving, melting, burning up. Um, you've got, and then uh, where all the old things are, are gone. All the, the wickedness is gone, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth which we look forward to in which righteousness dwells. That goes with the language that we saw here where there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, because the former things have passed away. So we've got this new heavens and this new earth. In a sense, what you have here, it's not annihilation so much to speak as much as it is sort of a heavenization, if I can make up a word there, a heavenization of the old creation. It is transformed. It is sort of like what happens, and we'll look at that in a moment, uh, a little bit later, but sort of what happens to our bodies, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where those who are alive when the Lord returns will be transformed. What was corruptible, what was worldly, what was fleshly will be transformed. It will become, it will become spiritual, it will be incorruptible, imperishable, full of glory, full of power. In a sense, that's what's happening with the old creation. It is being heavenized, it is being recreated, it is being regenerated, it is being uh, spiritualized, he's being turned into the new creation. Old creation passes away, new creation takes its place. That word there, new, doesn't just mean like, okay, I go out, I trade in my old car, and I buy a new one, right? The new car is not qualitatively better than my old car. It's newer, it's got newer parts, it has less mileage on it, but it is not new in the sense of it's something far better than a car. It's still just a car, right? New here speaks of not new in time, but new in quality, new in kind, new, it's, it's again, it's, it's the, the old is gone, it's burned up, it's done away with, and uh, this is nothing less, again, than new creation. As I said, the old creation is heavenized. I, I think I just coined a word there, heavenized. Uh, chapter 20, verse 11, when Christ sits on, on his white throne, we see there that the earth and heaven fled away. The old creation just sort of goes away. It rolls up like a scroll. It is gone. And in its place comes new creation. So John sees this new heaven and new earth uh, coming down eventually, uh, as we'll see the new Jerusalem coming down. But he sees this new heaven and this new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And he also says, and there was no more sea. Now, if you've been with us through the entire study or most of the study or even part of the study, what does the sea represent? What's that? 
peoples, danger, chaos, evil, all kinds of things that will not be in the new creation. Remember in chapter 13, verse 1, where the beast that John sees, he comes up out of the sea. In um, Daniel 7, verse 3, when Daniel sees the visions of the four beasts, they are coming up out of the sea. Uh, You don't need to turn here, but I'll just read them in Isaiah 27, verse 1. Um, On Judgment Day, in that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Again, the sea being a a picture of danger, of danger. Uh, Isaiah 57, verse 20. Need to invest in Bible tabs, I think. Turn to these little little sticky notes or something. Isaiah 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sea. There will be no more of this source of wickedness, this source of chaos and danger. It will be gone. It will be done away with. Those things will be no more. And with the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, there's also, as John sees here in verse 2, a new Jerusalem, a holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem, uh, the church, uh, she is holy. She is coming down out of heaven. She is prepared. In other words, she is passive. She doesn't prepare herself. She is prepared by God as a bride As a bride, we saw in chapter 19, the wedding feast in 7, chapter 19, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And in Psalm 45, uh, Psalm 45 is a a wedding psalm of the great king and his bride, um, which you you can say points to Jesus and the church. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is his bride. And in Psalm 45, you've got this this kind of marriage language here where uh, speaking of the bridegroom, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. And so on. But then you see the bride, where he says, Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget not your own people and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. In another psalm, Psalm 48 talks about the glory of God in Zion. Zion is is Jerusalem. Zion is, is where the people of God reside. Zion is where... God himself resides because that's where his temple is. And we talk about the great city, Zion, and it is, it is great. 
It is, it is wonderful. It is beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. The kings assemble, but they are troubled because God is in the midst of her. Zion, the city of our God. All these, all these images talk about how the new Jerusalem, is. this is what Jerusalem ought to have been and now is in the new heavens and the new earth. She is like a bride compared to what we saw earlier in Revelation 19 with the harlot, right? The harlot of Revelation 17, I should say, not 19. Revelation 17, whereas the harlot is, is gaudy and she's, she's dressed in these gaudy clothing. Uh, the bride is pure. She's holy. She's pristine. She is prepared for her bridegroom. So you see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride. And now John hears a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is covenant language. Covenant language that, that God promises in covenant to be to be God to a certain amount of people, and those people will be His people. He will be their God. This language is all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Same thing in Ezekiel 37, verse 27. I will be your God and you will be my people. And in John 1, 14, we see the Lord Himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Word. What does He do? He leaves heaven to come down amongst His people and to dwell with them. This is the Emmanuel principle. So anyway, you get this great truth of God's covenant with man, God's dwelling with humanity. This is the story, again, of redemptive history. When God created everything in the beginning in Genesis 1, He created a, a garden temple to be with his people. He created Adam in the garden and gave him a wife, Eve, in order to create a holy seed. This was to be the Emmanuel principle, God dwelling with his people in paradise. Unfortunately, of course, Adam failed and paradise was lost and Adam was cast out of Eden. He was cast east of Eden. But we see throughout the Old Testament this Emmanuel principle, this God dwelling with His people, it is typified, if you will, in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and then later the temple. The tabernacle was to be God's house, God's dwelling place among His people. We see it personified in Jesus as Jesus now is God in human flesh. The, the, that verb in the Greek to dwell uh, he dwelt among us is the word for a tent to tabernacle. You could say that Jesus came and he tabernacled with us. And now what you saw typified in the Old Testament, personified in Jesus, is now realized in the new heavens and the new earth where God will now dwell with his people, not in a temple, not in a tabernacle, but in the glorified form of Jesus Christ amongst his people. And in the new heavens and the new earth, all the vestiges of the old order will be removed, will be gone. Chapter 7, 
verse 17. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Or Isaiah 25, verse 20, uh, sorry, 25, verse 8. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Or as we will get later on eventually in 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 58. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Death will be defeated. All the, the, the language of wiping away the tears from our eyes, again, is the, is the language of removing all the things that are memories or things that call to, to mind the, 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 the misery of this age, the pain of this age, will be wiped away. They'll be removed. They will, and God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. The pain of, this, of living in this age will be gone. The old order is gone. Why? Because no death, no sorrow, no pain. The old order which was in bondage into decay and groaning in the pains of childbirth until this moment, we saw that in Romans 8.21 when we looked through Romans, how even this creation is groaning. This creation is, is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed so that this creation can be all that God meant it to be. This is good news, beloved. This is truly good news that when Christ returns, and it's kind of bookended, right? Because the wicked when Jesus judges them at the great white throne, they get the lake of fire. What do the righteous get? We get new heavens and new earth, right? This is what we get. This is what we get, those who are united with Christ, those who by faith place their trust in Christ and rest in Christ for their salvation, who have, whose names are in the book of life. Are, this is our reward. And it is a gracious reward. We don't earn this. We can't work for this. We can't do anything to get new heavens and new earth. Christ gets the new heavens and the new earth. He is the one who succeeded where Adam failed. He is the one who, who overcame. He is the one who obeyed perfectly the law of God. And then because we're united to Him in faith, we get new heavens and new earth. Everything that is characteristic of this age will be absent in the age to come. And this is our hope. 
And again, this ought to bring great comfort to not only John's readers who are facing persecution in some cases, or who perhaps their faith is, is being tested, or perhaps they're compromising. You know, go back and look at Revelation 2 and 3 and see the, the, the situation in those churches. That's reflective of the church throughout the whole age, the whole church age. You've got churches that are sort of in the place of compromise, or perhaps they're lukewarm in their faith, or perhaps they're undergoing persecution right now. Or perhaps they're faithful and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they're plugging along in the strength of the Lord. Either way, this ought to bring hope. That what we're laboring in, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, is not in vain. Why? Because we get new heavens and new earth as, as a gracious reward for our faith. And it also ought to fuel then our Christian living, which is why Paul could say, after all that wondrous glories in 1 Corinthians 15, at the end, that last verse, therefore, so it's like, look, this all leads into this, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, unshakable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know your labor is not in vain. Right? Nothing is in vain if it is done in the name of the Lord. So this hope of new heavens, new earth, ought to fuel our Christian living, ought to give us comfort in our trials and our sorrows, and ought to uh, just really just help us to, to get in focus what, what you know, we, you know we, we often try to, you know, we, we get discouraged by what you see around us, what you see in the news, what you see in the world today. Um, and that's why Paul will say you need to walk by faith. You have to walk by faith. If you walk by sight, you're going to be lost. If you walk by sight, you're going to be lost. If, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if your comfort, if your joy, if everything that, that brings you comfort and joy is based on what's going on in the world outside today, then you're, you're going to have no joy. right? Or you have a very fleeting joy, a very fleeting happiness. You've got to walk by faith. Walk by faith, not by sight. So now, secondly, it'll go a little quicker now. The, the first point was the biggest point. Secondly, so that was out with the old, in with the new. John hears a voice from God the Father in verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. So again, with the passing away of the old age, with the passing away of the old heavens and the old earth, the old creation, the age to come, the new creation would be marked by one word. And that word is? New. <laughs> it is a new creation. God says, I will make all things New. How many people here like new things? Right? If God said to you, Fred or Lyndon, I'm going to give you a brand new combine, would you turn them down? <laughs> no. Everybody wants a brand new combine, a brand new tractor, a brand new home, a brand whatever. We all like new things. Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, everything is new. Everything is new. I don't know exactly what that means. But what it means is we're not going to be bored in heaven, okay? We are not going to be bored in the new creation. We are, we're going to be always experiencing things that are new and exciting. And, we, and why? Because God is there. God is there. And, and, and Christ is there. We're going to be looking through the rest of this, 
you know, again, the, the, the fact, I mean, j- just skip ahead, look at verse 22 of chapter 21. The temple, which was representative of God's dwelling place, there's no temple in the new heavens and new earth. Why? Again, because God will be there himself. He doesn't need a temple. He's going to be there. The Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There is no need of sun or moon to shine. Why? Because the glory of, the, of God will illuminate it. The Lamb is its light. I mean, think of a world with no sin, no, no death, no, no evil, no wickedness, no lying, no, no pain, no sorrow. Almost too hard to believe. But God says here, I make all things new. And we're talking about the infinite mind of God here too, right? I mean, infinite creativity, infinite possibilities in the new heavens and the new earth. And again, same as before, that word new, kainos in the Greek, again, means new in quality, new in kind, in many ways like before, but in many ways far different, far better. Now, I said I was going to look at this, so let's look at... 1 Corinthians 15. This is in relation, of course, to the resurrection body. But if you think about it, the resurrection body is a body that is made for what? The new creation, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are already, those who are in Christ, are new creations. The old has passed away, the new, the new has come. So in our spirits we are remade, in the, in the, uh, at the end of the age, in the resurrection, then our bodies will be renewed, and then we'll be in a renewed heavens and a new earth. So in 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verse 35, again, this is the body. So, But I think you can make an argument that what Paul says here about the resurrection body can be um, said in, in, in the same way, analogous to what the new creation itself will be. So we're, you know, some were wondering and questioning the resurrection. So someone will say, well, how are the dead raised up? And with what kind of body do they come? Foolish one. <laughs> Careful when Paul starts off with that. <laughs> Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body, but that shall, but, uh, sorry. You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. Don't you love it when Paul uses agricultural uh, references here, right? The corn that you grow does not look like the corn that you plant in the ground. The seed grows into a plant. The same with soy, the same with any kind of plant. So what kind of body, what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the, the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, or of the dust, made of dust, the dust man. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, what is Paul saying there? Basically, what he's saying is the new creation is going to be different than the old creation, right? It's going to, there's going to be some similarities, right? What you sow, you sow the body in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. You sow the body natural, it is raised spiritual. You sow it in dishonor, it is raised in glory. You sow it weak, it is raised in power. So what is the resurrection body going to be look like? Well, look to Jesus Christ and his resurrection body. What kind of body did he have? He had a glorified body post-resurrection. And so will our bodies be. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And the same thing can be said of the earth. The earth is going to be sown in dishonor. It's going to be recreated, remade in glory, in honor. All things will be made new. It will be like, in some ways, similar, but qualitatively different. Far different, far better. As one commentator said, qualitatively transformed in a fundamental way. There's some passages I could look at in Isaiah, uh, 2 Corinthians. We keep flipping back and forth to Isaiah quite a bit. Um, but here, John now is told to write these things down. So the one sitting on the throne says to John, I make all things new. And then he says, write, for these words are true and faithful. Why is John told to write? So we could be here tonight talking about it. <laughs> right? I mean, really, it's kind of what it boils down to. If he didn't write these things, we would hardly believe it. But he writes them down so that we can go back to it. We would know nothing of heaven, nothing of the new creation, if we did not have the book of Revelation. Right? John is told to write these things down so that we will have a record. These are faithful and true words. Why? Because they, they come from a faithful and true God who speaks them. And if I may make a point of application about this, this is why we need to continually go back to the Word of God. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we can get discouraged when you look at the world around us. We can kind of lose our focus on heavenly things when we get too mired in the world around us. But it's always good to come back to the Word of God, to have our, our minds refocused, retrained by what the Word of God has to teach us over and over again. Right? Think of what Jesus said in the foot washing. You're clean, but sometimes when you go out in the world, you have the stain of the world on you, and you need your feet washed. You come to church, you hear the word read and proclaimed, you, you receive the means of grace in the church, and your feet are washed, your mind is renewed. We need to, as the, you know, R.C. Sproul and his show, right, renewing your mind right, by coming back over and over again to the, wor to the word. You may not think so, or maybe you do think so, but this world is trying to program us, right? 
That's why Paul says in Romans 12, do not be trans or do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world try to shape you into its mold. Do not let the world try to give you an identity, try to tell you who you are. You are who the word says you are, not the world. Not your heart. Don't follow your heart. Okay? Don't listen to the old Disney. Right? Follow your heart. No, that's bad advice. Follow the word. Right? Your heart can mislead you. Your emotions can mislead you. The word will never mislead you. Right? The psalmist says, your word is what? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It shows you the way. And we need to go back to the word of God. When you doubt and when you feel discouraged, Come back to this passage where God says, I will make all things new. This is our hope. This is a promise from God. They are his true and faithful words. Finally, verses 6 through 8, it is done. So the father continues speaking in verses 6 through 8 when he says, it is done. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So just, when, just as when Jesus said on the cross, right, he said, it is finished. Here God says at the end, when new creation comes, he says, it is done. All of it is done. The whole plan from the very beginning, the plan of God before the world was created, the plan which was crafted in eternity past is done. It has come to completion. The new heavens and the new earth, the new creation is finally and fully realized. This, again, was what it was originally intended in the garden. This was what was originally given to Adam as a reward for his obedience. And had he obeyed, then the new heavens and the new earth would have been ushered in right then and there. This was the plan from the beginning. And then the Father here echoes the words that Jesus himself says in Chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 1, verse 11, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, God is the source. He is the beginning of all things, and he is their their telos. He is their goal. He is their end. Everything begins and ends in God, as Paul will say at the end of Romans 11, right? For from him, to him, and through him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You got that language here where he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Who are the thirsty ones? Us, right? Those who recognize their thirst. Just as Jesus said on the last day of the the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, if anyone thirsts, come to me, and I will give him freely to drink of the waters, and I will give him the Spirit, and it will be a fountain welling up to eternal life within him. I believe this echoes language from Isaiah 55, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Isaiah 55, 1. 
I didn't put this down, but I, I, the footnote here says so. But Isaiah 51, it says, Come, all who thirst, come and buy freely. Right? Come to the Lord. The Lord graciously gives of the waters of life. And later on, we're going to see the tree of life entering again in chapter 22, uh, verse 2. In the midst of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life. That tree that was in the beginning in the garden is reintroduced. The waters of life are freely given. And then we see the overcomers. Those who inherit. The invitation here and the promise to those who inherit. This is language we've seen earlier when Jesus writes the letters to the seven churches. In chapter 2, verse 11, verse 17, verse 25. To the one who overcomes... To the one who overcomes, who is the one who overcomes? The one who has their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Right? We don't, over, we, don't, we don't overcome in our own strength. We overcome because of our faith in Christ. It is the Spirit inside of us who preserves us and, and keeps us safe and secure in the faith. He is our guarantee of what will be the reward, the inheritance that we will receive at the end of the age. We overcome because Christ has overcome We persevere because the Spirit preserves us. And again, you see that language of covenant, that language of adoption. The one who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Or, you know, if you're a woman, don't think that (laughs) you're excluded, okay? Son is just an adoption term, right? Uh, It just means that we will be his children. The one who overcomes will be brought in, we will inherit all things, and we will be his children. We will be the children of God through our faith in Christ. We are adopted children, right? We are adopted by our faith in Christ. Christ is the true son, and we are sons and daughters because we are in Christ. The invitation and the promise to those who overcome. But there's the warning in verse 8. Because this is the new creation... The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part not in the new heavens and the new earth, but in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, the second death, we've seen this before, that is eternal death, that is, that is eternal damnation, whatever, however you want to describe it, it is eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. For those who do not overcome, for those who, who give in to the wiles of the beast, for, to those who, who abandon the Son, abandon God, and turn to the beast, right? And worship the beast. The warning. None of that will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So as we bring this to a close tonight, again, the new heavens and the new earth, as I, as I said previously, this, it was, this was what was held out to Adam at the very beginning. When God created Adam in the garden, he placed the test there, right? The test was the commandment to not eat of the tree that he designated. And again, had Adam obeyed, had Adam fulfilled that task, if he had given God his perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, then he would have been ushered into the new creation. The new creation would have been right then and there, and our Bibles would be a heck of a lot smaller, right? <laughs> You'd have Genesis 1 and 2 and then Revelation 21 and 22. You'd have like about this much of the Bible right there. See, all that part in the middle, that's because Adam failed, okay? (laughs) Um, 
as my Bible markers go all over the place now. But that was held out. The first Adam failed. It took the last Adam to succeed. And think about how the last Adam succeeded, right? The first Adam was placed in paradise. Where was Jesus when he was tempted by the devil? He was in the wilderness, right, for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, fasting in the wilderness. Adam was in a garden, a luscious garden, right? Uh, when, when, when Satan tempted Eve, where was Adam? I don't know, he was off. Yeah, I know he was with her, but he wasn't, he wasn't doing what he should have been doing, right? He was counting the stars in the sky or the sand in the sea or whatever he was doing. Uh, and he wasn't there to kick the serpent out of the garden. He wasn't there to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, when he was tempted, what did he do? He quoted the word of God right back to Satan. And, of course, we know that the last Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded by crushing the head of the serpent on the cross when he defeated death and Satan and sin and all these things permanently on the cross. And because of that, we get the greatest blessing of heaven which will be unhindered fellowship with God for all eternity. We will be with God himself. Not not the Father. We will be with the Son, right? The Son will be there. We will be there with the Son in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's it for tonight. Next time uh, will be in three weeks, right? We've got five Sundays in October. So in two weeks we will not meet. That will be the 30th. So the next time will be November 6th. And the plan is to cover verses 9 through 21 as we look at the new Jerusalem. So it is about, yes, Joanne, you had a question right away. You're not wasting any time.